Hi, everybody joining the programmatic meetup community. We meet every Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time for about an hour. On today's community call, we have a special guest, Miles, from the U of Digital. Before we get into Miles, quick interview that we'll use in the programmatic digest podcast how about we just do a quick like who wants to share two wins and a challenge with the rest of the community today let's let's have like two three volunteers and then we'll get into miles interview and miles is going to talk about data clean rooms and identity where we stand as an industry so he's going to bring us like the latest and greatest about things but who wants to share i'm willing to go first yeah absolutely So um, I'm going to do my challenge first and then two wins. So my challenge is we're having some billing issues rearing their heads from 2022 for clients. Yeah. So super annoyed to say the least and want to make sure that we get those straightened out pretty quickly. And then um, my two wins would be uh, we are working on some new business pitches, which are super exciting in a variety of categories. So love to see that pipeline, you know, pretty strong. And then my second win is I just got off the phone with a company that is really focused on decarbonization of uh, the digital marketing ecosystem, particularly ad tech. And so that was um, a topic that's been near and dear to my heart, just in general for our agency and our clients. And so I'm really excited to be able to bring forth some real ideas to clients on how we can um, conduct their programmatic buying in a smarter way that is eco-sensitive. Yeah, uh, sustainability is uh, is hot right now. Is that? Did you yeah. talk to like Scope Three or Good yes, Apple? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Those are the only two I know are that are dedicated to. Yes. So Scope Three for sure, and then I've been talking with Adelaide, which is focused on attention metrics, but they have like a whole angle that has to do with. Um, the, the fact that if you focus on attention metrics over like viewability or something else, that it actually helps to drive down uh, the energy usage and um, you're able to uh, have far more efficient conversions that happen to um, be less carbon intensive. So it's mm, really cool. Stuff. Okay, yeah. Learn it all and then come back and teach us. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Does somebody else wants to go? That's actually pretty cool. And billing is a pain. Billing is a pain, especially when there's like discrepancies between tech and and client. Billing is really painful. So hang in there. You can do it. All right. No volunteers. I can go. So two wins. One win is having Miles on the the call today. Really, really excited about our conversation. So thank you again for coming by. A second win is that tomorrow is my baby shower. I know it's both. And I, I cannot, I'm not ready, but I'm kind of excited because families that I haven't seen in a while are coming into town. So that's, that's exciting. A challenge has been, what has been a challenge just following up. Like I get some pretty, some pretty interesting leads come through and and I'm not the best at following up. So I'm trying to improve that. Um, But yeah, that has been a challenge just being consistent with how I follow up with leads or how I just follow up with like students and things like that. So I'm working on that. Okay, cool. So let's get into uh, the interview. Okay. Miles is here from U of Digital. Um, Y'all heard me talk about them a lot. Okay. Um, I'm a big, 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 big fan of their newsletter and they're giving us access to the newsletter. So I'll be sharing that in emails later. Um, But yeah, so Miles is going to talk to us about data privacy, where we stand as an industry. We're going to talk about 
I mean, it's all related if you think about it, identity and also like data clean rooms, which are maybe three topics that have been really heavy on my shoulders. Like, what are they? What's going on in this world? I'm so excited to talk about Miles. But Miles, before we get into today's conversation, how about you give us like a good two, three minutes introduction about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and really like how you got started in the industry? Yeah, it's, it's tough to pack that into two or three minutes, but um, so I okay, joined... Okay, three minutes and a half. We'll give you... <laughs> I, joined, I joined U of Digital around five and a half months ago, I think oh. at this point. Um, uh, and uh, I had met Shiv a good year and a half to two years prior to that. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we basically met over Twitter. Ellen, you and I were just talking about the power <laughs> of kind yeah. of Twitter and uh, you know, making connections that way. Y'all should sit on Twitter, at least when networking. Yeah. Now, advertising, I don't know, you know. <laughs> and so prior to U of Digital, I was at uh, an agency called Media Monks. So Media Monks mm-hmm. is a global digital agency. It is the one that Sir Martin Sorrell founded uh, after mm-hmm. he left WPP. So I was there uh, for about five years. Uh, I got, I ended up at Media Monks by a, a, an acquisition. I was at a smaller programmatic consultancy called Mighty Hive. Oh, cool. and prior to that, uh, I was a, an ad tech founder for around ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, so built and ran a small DCO platform called Can Banners, which mm-hmm. you know uh, gave me a, a whatever peek behind the curtain as to how you build and run an ad tech company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, going back even further than that, I started my uh, career on the client side doing uh, B2B marketing uh, at a number of different companies. Um, and I, I currently live in Portland, Oregon, originally from San Francisco is where I grew up. Cool. Very cool. So you started in B2B marketing account management, you said? Just B2B marketing, just corporate marketing. I, you gotcha. Know, I, I did all kinds of things. I did emails, I did events, I did product marketing, all of it. What made you uh, shift into programmatic or ad tech? I essentially fell into it. Like I didn't know that I was getting into ad tech. I I had an idea for a company to start around uh, display ad creative, so digital display ad creative. And I found two friends who were willing to, you know, sort of launch the company with me. And uh, we didn't know it at the time, but we were building an ad tech company. And so this was back in 2008 when we first got started. So ad tech was a category that was known only to a very few people in the Bay Area and New York. You know, there was no broader news coverage of the sector. Ad Exchanger was the only newsletter that had any coverage of it. And Ad Exchanger was just run by um, uh, John, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his last name right now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the original founder of Ad Exchanger. Yeah. So it was, it was, we didn't know we were getting into ad tech. I didn't realize it until years later. <laughs> they trapped you. Now you're yeah, stuck. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it very much. No, I mean, I never looked back. I never, now that I'm in ad tech, I never want to leave. Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it'd be like that sometime. I, yeah. I, can, I can relate. Cool. So I asked all of this question to all of the guests that comes, comes by before our conversation is like, what would be your definition of programmatic industry to a five-year-old? But let me just give you another question. Like what would, how would you define the 
advertising technology industry to a five-year-old? Oh man, this is great. I mean, my oldest daughter is much older than five now, mm-hmm. but I have been explaining to her in bits and pieces what I do mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, and so, and you know, kids right. these days are smarter, very smarter-ish, very than, than before. So, yes, uh, uh, no, no, she's she's extremely sharp, and she oh, uh, sure. she she has a pretty good she has a pretty good understanding of. Uh, uh, with digital media, I guess. So let's see, how would I explain programmatic to a five-year-old? Um, <laughs> I would I would say that it is like if you have a product that you want to sell mm-hmm. and you want to run advertisements about that product so that people are aware of it, so that they'll want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, programmatic advertising is like a robot that you give instructions to and you say, hey, can you go find me some people who might be interested in this thing and, and show them these ads? And hopefully they'll, you know, they'll visit my store, they'll visit my website, whatever, and they'll buy, they'll buy this product. That's more or less probably how I would describe it to, to mm. a little kid. Okay. Okay. That's a really good way to break it down. Um, so now explain data privacy to a five-year-old. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, you can yeah, start and then let's I, really get into it. Well, left no, I mean, I, you, you really do have me thinking as to whether I have ever explained that specifically <laughs> to my daughter. I mean, you know, I, 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 we, we do talk to her about, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, being safe online, things like that of like, Hey, look, there's a lot of people out there who want to know things about you. And essentially you don't know their intentions. Yeah, because it's the internet. They 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 may or may not be who they say they are. So you have no way of knowing their intentions. And so, you know, protecting yourself is is important. And and, and you know, that's essentially another way of kind of defining you know privacy, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so let's segue into into the conversation today, then, because I think that's a good way to to explain this. Um, there's a lot of shit happening with data privacy, and I'm the first one to admit is like. I can't keep up with everything. I think the latest and the greatest I paid attention to was when Google, the DOJ thing, right? So so if you had to tell us, the listeners, the community, anybody out here in these streets, what they should know about data privacy when it comes to the ad tech industry, like what's going on, first of all, and then what? why is it so important for us to know it? So in terms of explaining it from a really high level, mm-hmm. um, I, so I wrote a piece for Mobile Dev Memo in late 2021, I think, uh, called, uh, I think the title was Digital Privacy is Now an Unstoppable Three-Body Problem. And the title comes from... Uh, the, the three-body problem, which is um, a, essentially kind of a physics problem when you have three bodies orbiting each other in space. If you have two bodies orbiting each other or one orbiting around the other, like the Earth orbiting around the sun. It's very predictable. The motions of the bodies are very predictable. If you add a third one into that, so there's three different bodies orbiting one another, it becomes impossible to predict over the long term you know, say, well, where would these these bodies be in a hundred years, in a thousand years, in a hundred thousand years? It's impossible to predict. And that's what's going on with digital privacy. Um, and then the three bodies yeah. broadly, uh, if I'm recalling my own 
thing correctly mm-hmm. is government regulation is one mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, public opinion is another mm-hmm. one. And the third one is um, tech platforms, just making changes. So whatever, Apple's uh, Safari ITP would be like, a, or Google, you know, deprecating third-party cookies in Chrome would be a, a, a technological change. Right. Okay. And so we we remain in a state where at any given time, any one of those, there could be a major change in any one of those three categories that could completely turn everything upside down. So... Uh, even if, for instance, the technology piece of things gets sort of settles down, that doesn't mean that, for instance, we might get not, might not get federal privacy legislation, you right. know, next month or something uh, that completely you know turns everything upside down. So, like that's that's how I explain what's going on, like at an extremely high level. It's just you can't you can't predict it, uh, and so don't try. Um, um, and so you know, then it becomes a question of kind of like I think figuring out which parts of it seem to be getting more, at least reaching some point of like stability, um, which, you know, you pointed out like data clean rooms, which you can talk about, which it's, it seems to be like that's, as a technology, it's gaining general acceptance. Um, um, and I think the other thing, you know, if you dig further behind that, the fact that that's gaining general acceptance is that what's also just gaining general acceptance is that Third-party cookies are dying. Mobile ad IDs are kind of dying, uh, or they're just not going to work as well as they used to. Like you know, that was something two or three years in the past. There wasn't necessarily this general acceptance around, um, but now there seems to be at least that general acceptance. Everybody's accepted this is happening, mm-hmm. and so now you're seeing a lot of tech platforms and companies kind of aligning around you know something like data cleanups. Got it. Okay. So, so before we get into data clean rooms, what, what is the, what is one thing we really need to understand about data privacy aside from you gotta, you gotta accept that things are happening. Okay. <laughs> Hi, did you know that at Ellen Parker Consulting, we now offer an accelerator program where we attract, recruit and train future marketers. And their training include a six weeks program where they cover programmatic landscape, um, industry, important industry trends, the differences between targeting placement and targeting mix and their best practices, including optimization and reporting hacks. Um, And they're able to set up, manage and monitor a campaign, a demo campaign in the trade desk, everything including audience selection, inventory optimization, SPO, creative upload, brand safety, you name it. They're able to do it at the end of the six weeks program. So If you are part of the 90% of employers struggling to find a skilled candidate today and not willing to spend $14,900 on a bad hire, according to Zipia, give us a call. Let's discuss which one of our five to 10 juniors available every month is the perfect fit for your team. Clients who have hired our juniors have shared that we were able to help them save one to two months on boarding with those juniors. Give us a call right now and let's discuss the solution with you. What is one thing or what's like the latest news that came out? I mean, I'm not going to hold you against it if you don't know, but like, what's the latest thing you've heard from on that topic that made you think, hmm, this is important because this. The web three as a topic seems to have kind of died down. But one of the things that I 
found interesting about Web3 is the idea that anonymity would just start to be built into things at a very fundamental level. It wouldn't just be like uh, an, a setting in your browser or something like that. It would be much more fundamental than that, that, that uh, you could uh, essentially have a digital life and have it be sort of protected in the same way that your life in the real world is protected in terms of, in terms of privacy. Um, uh, and I think that's a thing that, that's one of, to me, the, the things that's kind of like, uh, again, this gets back to the whole three body problem and you can't really predict what's going to happen is that ad tech, a lot of ad tech is kind of predicated on the assumption that, um, a lot of consumers, um, first of all, they're going to be on web two. So it just assumes that they're going to be on web two and maybe they won't be forever. Maybe new technologies will kind of take over, you know, and then there's also other technologies like, uh, for instance, uh, Apple's like hide my email, which totally even blows up a lot of clean room use cases. We have too many people using anonymized emails, then those emails don't resolve to anyone. And so that to me is like one of the, you know, things that's kind of like lurking under the surface uh, is that, we don't really know how web technology is going to evolve over the next couple of years and whether or not it is going to have increasing layers of anonymity built, just built right into it directly. So real quick, because you talk about web two and web three. So I, I think I forgot. What's the difference between the two? I mean, web three has like this really, really big giant definition. But uh, because no, I mean, nothing like, new like, in our industry, unfortunately. Yeah, right? <laughs> people jam everything under Web three. And right. I'm not like a web. I'm not like a Web three guy. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they put like metaverse into it. Okay, okay, okay. Now I remember. Yeah. So Web three, yeah. the easiest way to understand is like metaverse stuff, and then Web two is the rest of us, I guess. <laughs> well, so I know if. If we if we think back to and I don't know how old everybody is on this call, but like I'm we old are enough, very wise. I, I'm old enough to remember. <laughs> uh -huh. Maybe some other people on this call old enough to remember mm -hmm. the shift from Web One, quote unquote, to Web Two. It was a very like kind of specific shift, and it was very visible to just an everyday person. Because, mm -hmm. for instance, all of a sudden, you remember um, a really long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. If you were using an online maps service, like uh, I think Yahoo had a map service, you would have to map click Quest. a little arrow. MapQuest, you would have to click a little arrow to move around the map, right? It was like four arrows. It was really, really clunky oh, by today's times. standards. And then all of a sudden, Web2 came along and suddenly you could just smoothly travel oh, around the I map. See, I see. And the map had an API that could integrate with other data sources. So if you if you got, for instance, a file or an API that would tell you the location of, uh, you know, every coffee shop in your city, you could then plot those locations onto a map and be able to explore and interact with that map in real time online. So this is not a computer program running on your computer. This was something you were able to access via your web browser. Yeah. So that was like web two. And so web two, the assumption was that everything was going to travel over these open APIs. Mm -hmm. Like you remember, like Twitter had a much more yeah. open set of APIs. Facebook, all the social platforms had much more open APIs, you know, 15 years ago, because that was the assumption. And so included in that mm -hmm. 
was that consumer data could travel openly over web APIs. Mm -hmm. Like your consumer information by a third-party cookie ID could be grabbed off of any website that you were browsing. It could be synced with any other data set via an API call in real time as you're browsing a CNN or something like that. Um, um, and that was all built on web two principles. So a lot of like the privacy challenges that, you know, we're kind of grappling with today and things that are needing to be unwound come straight from this web two revolution that happened, mm. like, you know, at this point, 15, almost 20 years ago. So yeah. it's, it's that, and that's why I say that we all assume that that's how the internet has to work, no, yeah, but that's yeah. not how web one worked. That was how web two worked and web three may work pretty different. You know, when y'all, when you talked about um, map, map quest, the only thing I can think about is like, y'all remember the days where we had to print? Yes. <laughs> print directions. Yeah. How many? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I'm only 33, but like, I remember okay. specifically these days when we had to <laughs> print map quest and then go. Oh, yeah. I remember driving around with yeah. Yeah, big stacks of black we and went, white. Yeah. We went from Virginia to Boston on MapQuest, Virginia to like freaking Miami on MapQuest. Those, those were good old days, I guess. <laughs> if you can call it that. If you can call it that. Uh, but okay, so let's shift. I think it's a good way to continue the conversation too, because the one of the reason why we started talking about identity or whatever that is, or signal lost, is because data privacy is pushing big tech giant like Google, the Google, or, you know, those other giants to really reconfigure how we're tracking things like audience, right? Um, and that's when we, you talked about the third-party cookie. So I had a question from, from the community here, and I think it's a really great question because when you said that the industry is accepting the third-party cookie is going away, I almost said, mm, is it really or is it not really? But then this person asked, is Google really getting off third-party cookies or just trying to change the meaning of third-party cookies? And it got me thinking. So how would you how would you answer this question? I kind of like the I kind of like the, the notion that Google might simply change the definition. Yeah. yeah. Keep the technology intact. I I actually won't. That's not a bad idea, and I won't argue against that. That seems almost plausible. <laughs> we can only talk so much junk about Google, y'all. Okay, they're um, listening. I actually am one of the people who will talk the least junk about them. I'm I'm probably among the most sympathetic people to, to yeah. Google in in the in the industry, I and you. I, you know, every now and then I get sort of tomato virtual tomatoes thrown at me uh, because <laughs> hate mail coming to you. Hate yeah, I just think. <laughs> I um so um do, yeah I so I think I think they'll deprecate third party cookies. This is another okay. I'm I'm gonna keep referencing my third three body problem thing. So I'm sorry to be a broken record on that one. But for instance, if the DOJ is successful in breaking up some of Google's advertising media empire in whatever way that might happen, it could take a lot of different forms. Yeah. You know, what might that mean for the Chrome browser? So, you know, setting aside the question of whether Google has to divest its Chrome browser or not, if, for instance, Google has to divest all of its buy side ad tech. Now, this is just me. I'm in an armchair just thinking about this. I don't, I don't, 
I could be completely wrong here, but if I'm on the Chrome team, I run a web browser. I don't run an advertising technology company. I'm, I'm building a web browser for people who want to browse the web. I, I might just completely ditch a lot of the privacy sandbox stuff and say, this has, you know, really no place in Chrome. We just need to get Chrome to parity with Safari and Firefox and uh, what's Microsoft Edge? Is that what they call it now? Yeah. I, yeah. It's not Internet Explorer. I think it's Edge now. Yeah. Man, I have I have it on this computer. It shows how little <laughs> I use it. <laughs> yeah, I only do Chrome and Safari. Yeah. I only do I just, Safari uh, when Chrome isn't working the way I want them to work. That's it. I, I think it's entirely possible that, that major components of, for instance, the Privacy Sandbox project, which is kind of the thing, that's the thing standing in the way of them deprecating third-party cookies. They could have already deprecated third-party cookies. Like Firefox already did it. Safari already did it. I can't remember exactly where Edge stands today, but I'm pretty sure they're like, you know, in they've, <laughs> they've deprecated or they're close to it. That's not what's standing in Chrome's way. What's standing in Chrome's way is Privacy Sandbox. And so if you take away the need for them to build Privacy Sandbox, which mm -hmm. they've been investing a lot of effort into for well over three years now, mm -hmm. uh, if you take that away, why couldn't they just set a six or 12 month timeline and say, yep, we're deprecating them, like get used to it. Which, and we're, that's going to make Chrome no different than the other browsers. It's not yeah. even a, that actually support for th third-party cookies currently makes Chrome abnormal. Like it makes it not normal. So deprecating third-party cookies, that is actually what would bring Chrome back into normalcy with the other browsers. Why, why, I didn't follow. Why is it not normal? Why is it, why is it abnormal? Because it's the only browser that still supports them by default. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay, that I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah, every other browser has decided on this and they have decided to step away from third-party cookies. And so when you drop, when you mix, when you throw in, into the mix things like data clean rooms, right? Uh, well, first of all, give us your five-year-old definition of data clean room. <laughs> oh man. And then like, again, I'm excited about data clean rooms based on what I've learned Actually, at Projo last 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 May in Vegas, uh, but give us like your your again your quick definition and why it's important here. So my data clean room definition mm -hmm. for five year olds isn't actually for a five year old, but it's 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 like this is my a fifteen plain year English. old. Yeah, that's just this speaking. is my my plain <laughs> English definition. Okay. So the my sort of quasi technical definition of a data clean room is to allow, say, a marketer to work with a data set to employ a data set data about people without having to directly touch that data or interact or access that data directly, but they can still perform work on that data. And so that's a, you know, kind of a nuanced distinction of how do I work on data without accessing the data? So this is my example to kind of like, just explain how that's possible. Let's say that I am a contractor working at a large company. So I don't work for that large company. They just brought me in as a contractor to maybe do some analytics or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Ellen, let's say you work at the company, you work in the HR department at that company. All right. And I've been hired to analyze people's uh, salaries. Mm -hmm. And so I go to, you know, and so as a contractor, mm -hmm. your company, Ellen, is not going to give me direct access to HR data. 
they're just like, you don't have clearance to access our HR data directly. So, you know, somebody, you know, asks me to run an analysis and say, well, we want to know how many people earn over $100,000 in the Western region. And we just need you to run those analytics. Mm -hmm. So I go to you, Ellen, who you work for the company and you work in the HR department. I say, Ellen, mm-hmm. can I need to know how many people make over $100,000 in the Western region. Can you give that, you know, can you give me that number? Because uh, I need to run some, it's part of a project. And so you go access the database mm-hmm. and you run that query in the database and you give me the number and maybe the number is a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, Miles, here, it's a thousand people. And I say, thank you. That's all I needed to know. And so in that analogy, you're the data clean room, Ellen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're allowing me to perform work on employee data without ever accessing the employee data, meaning I got the answer I wanted, but I never had to directly a- access that data, never had to access anybody's salary information. All you told me was the summary answer that I needed was it was a thousand people miles. Mm-hmm. Great. So that's that's kind of my um, like super plain English definition. Yeah, that's good. So why? So, okay. So something that trips me up or get me lost is when you hear big brands, right? Those seven to eight figure brands that in terms of data, I mean, in terms of budget spend, of course, um, talking about sharing a data clean room. Why is that another form? Is it, is that like, um, second party, data 2.0 maybe with data clean room when you hear like target and walmart saying we're going to share a clean room because we can't afford one by ourselves or something like that um so i think data clean rooms and sort of second party data collaboration or second party data activation essentially anything having to do with second party data Mm -hmm. which for everybody's benefit second party data at least the definition I always use is it's someone else's first party data. Yeah. So it's someone's first party data. It's just not, yours. It's, it's your partner's first party data. Anything having to do with second party data these days is by default, you just might as well assume it's going to use a data clean room. And yeah. even if you take away all technological considerations, there's all the legal and IT security considerations mm-hmm. that like you just... Now that data clean rooms are kind of an industry standard sort of technology, there would be no reason that, you know, a a, a company, you know, corporate counsel or a a CIO, CTO is going to allow uh, uh, a company's first party data to be shared without there being a data clean room there to to ensure data security, essentially. Mm. I have two questions that are going off because um, you just finished that way. Okay. Okay. Do you know what this is reminding me? Do you know what data clean room reminds me of? Like almost like this more secure data provider, you know, like when you log into your DMP, you have Experient, Bombura, Blue Kai, you name it. The, hmm, here's a million dollar question. I know you're asking us not to ask for prediction because we can't predict, but do you think eventually data clean rooms is going to catch on so much more that data provide a data provider itself, like a DMP is going to become obsolete? Um, I mean, a DMP, like the classic DMP use case, which was, uh, you know, a means for a marketer or an agency, just somebody on the buy side to manage and segment and suppress 
audiences that were defined by third-party cookie pools. Like once Chrome deprecates third-party cookies, mm -hmm. that's that particular technology is just totally dead. So yeah, yeah, and so yes, a DMP by definition would have to perhaps be some become some sort of technology that would allow a marketer or an agency hmm. to manage and segment audiences across multiple clean rooms. But the big difference is those clean rooms don't necessarily talk to each other. Like for instance, you know, ads, ads, ads data hub and Amazon marketing cloud don't talk to each other. They're not supposed to, uh, um, uh, they'll never talk to each other. Uh, um, and so, There'll just be that difference that you won't have, you won't necessarily have apples to apples audiences across data clean rooms, but you could certainly have a technology in the middle that just says, hey. Okay, I was going to say, is there a way these? to plug plug things in like the trade desk or media math and then just, just understand that this is Amazon, whatever cloud data and we're targeting in markets for new plastic bottles or whatever. Well, oh, wait, it so, would be metal bottles to remain sustainable. Sorry, sorry, guys. <laughs> um, would, would it be that you think it's my move into that? Because I, I do think that I'm a big fan of the open exchange for many reasons, and I've received also hate mails for that. But I do think that is going to become like a lower percentage of the buy, the programmatic buys on the OMP, open marketplace, and then a lot more direct private deals tech-related deals, like contextual, advanced contextual view, I don't know, a live intent or something. And it's not going to become as programmatic as we think, even though the buy is still programmatic, the, the setup would be more on the one-on-one or direct. So do you think, do you think data clean rooms is going to be more accessible for like smaller to, to medium-sized brands? Like how would, can a data room just be like, just attract, like, can it one data room have a few of those smaller brands in it so there's is that I possible think there's, yeah, then it would be possible. a dmp right i don't know yeah, yeah yeah exactly so so um there's nothing really preventing uh say an ad tech or a martech company so a data clean room itself is fairly like complex and arcane piece of technology and it kind of has to be in order to allow you to work on data without touching the data. Like that's mm. just, that's a complex thing to set up. Mm. Um, um, but there's nothing really preventing an ad tech or a MarTech company from building some sort of uh, productivity layer above that to make it easier to work with uh, or to make it easier to work with multiple data clean rooms at once. Um, um, so I, I fully expect that we'll see that and like it won't recreate the open exchange because no, I, i think so too yeah yeah once third-party cookies die, a lot of that stuff is just kind of dead i think i i just it, it it's it was it worked well Built for you 15 20 years but it's it's a it's had its moment yeah. um um but there's no reason yet that you couldn't build a technology that would allow you to work with multiple data clean rooms directly and then potentially yes integrate directly into something like the trade desk so that you don't have to take extra steps. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that's one reason there's so many companies on the Lumascape is because a lot of those companies are exist as these productivity layers or these middleware layers to say, mm -hmm. Oh, well, you want to do X, Y, and Z, but you don't have, 
the expertise or the staff or the budget to work with technology X, Y, and Z, well, we'll build technology A, we'll integrate with all three and you just pay us a much lower fee than what you would pay to, to work with all those technologies directly. So yeah, I, I think it's totally possible. And yes, that- I think it'll take time. Yeah, it'll take time. And a technology like that might be sort of the next evolution of what a DMP is. Ah, that's a good segue into yeah. somebody asked this question. And I want to make sure to ask it. So yeah. how do clean rooms vary from <clears throat> DMP or data lake? So I don't yeah, know what data DM lake is. I, I can I can I can try to answer this. Um so a DMP, I, I, Allison, I I think I already kind of talked about mm -hmm. DMP after you asked the the question. So like DMP, just the classic definition is that you're managing uh, multiple uh, third-party audience segments from a, a central piece of software, essentially. And uh, the beauty is that those third-party audience segments can kind of all talk to each other because that's the beauty of third-party cookies. So, we're, you know, you can, you can implement uh, global frequency caps and global audience suppression rules and things like that. Uh, which you're just not going to be able to do that uh, in data clean room world necessarily. Mm. Um, um, you're not going to be able to have a frequency cap in Ads Data Hub that talks to a frequency cap in Amazon Marketing Cloud. They're just not going to talk to each other in that way. So that's so DMP. So that's kind of how DMP would vary uh, uh, versus data clean room. Uh, data lake like is essentially just a, a method of storing kind of raw data sets in the cloud for lack of a, a better term. Um, um, and so a data lake, I'm just trying to like think, you know, would be separate from a, from a data clean room. Yeah. You know, usually you, you probably would not plug a data lake directly into a data clean room. The reason being that a data lake, the um, um, the way, what essentially data lakes, one of the things about data lakes is data in a data lake is not super well organized for lack of a better term. I'm, I'm like struggling to like think of like technical or non-technical terms to explain this, but a data lake, the data just isn't like super well organized. And that's part of the principle of a data lake, but a data clean room needs data to be very well organized because it's got such complex rules. It needs to, the data going into or out of a data clean room needs to uh, uh, adhere to a very strict set of schemas. Whereas a data lake doesn't have like a strict set of schemas. So I don't know, Allison, I, hopefully that like help explain a little bit sort of the, the differences between these things. And if you have like other questions or I didn't, I did a bad job explaining it. Let me know. It's a good question. <laughs> so anybody else has a question in the community they want to ask? Hey, Alan. Hello. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, guys. Uh, just a, a question here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a media buyer in the pharma space, and I meet with, um, constantly I meet with new vendors about custom segments. And whenever I meet with new with new vendors, uh, they all have the identity graph. They all have like opt-in panels. So I, I was wondering, like, since you since you deal with like uh, like identity, uh, what would be kind of like some 
best practices like any time you meet with a with a new custom vendor to kind of like determine which ones are the better vendors from like the worst vendors yeah it's you know i'll be completely honest with you carlos i don't have a great answer to that question it's a really good question i just i i personally don't um have enough knowledge but ellen i can't remember when shiv is supposed to be on but um uh, the- uh next week Next week, Shiv will be here for C. Well, surprise, guys! Shiv is going to be here next week for OTT and CTV, and he could probably address that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he, I think he's going to be talking about that question specifically yeah. at um, the Ad Monsters Ops. Oh, conference. that's true. I told him just in, to repurpose in, his content into. Yeah, that's right. That's in true. June. <laughs> so, uh, Carlos, it's like a really good question. My colleague Shiv. Uh, uh, actually has like a well-developed uh, uh, answers for it. But um, like, honestly, I I haven't, there are just, there's not a lot of good resources out there. So it's like, if you're having trouble sort of figuring out a good way to evaluate these vendors, like it's not you, it's mm-hmm. the fact that they're just like, I, cause a lot of people I talk to in the industry have the same lack of like, information like i was just talking yeah. to uh what was this at ramp up in san francisco we were talking to a company that has an identity graph you know and and they have some interesting insights into which identifiers are kind of work better in the market versus others and i said to their their chief product officer i said like well if you have that information like can you please publish it as some research because a lot of people would really that to be very useful information. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and he was like, yeah, you know, we haven't gotten to it or whatever, maybe they never will, but like, uh, you know, that's why is because, you know, if companies who are sitting kind of, because you have to occupy kind of a privileged position in the ecosystem, you have to have all that data passing through you, whoever you are as a company um, um, in order to really understand which identity provider is, um, sort of has the strongest solution and the companies that are in those privileged positions, if they don't say publish research, then the rest of us have very little way of knowing without just like running test campaigns. Mm. So anyway, I'm sorry. I don't have a better answer. No, said test them all and then come back and tell us. I think that's what he's trying to tell you. No, no, that's good. I actually asked Shiv, and he, he didn't have a good answer either. So he well, he better. Oh, dang. He better have one for ops in June. So <laughs> maybe your answer will come in June. But you know, Carlos, everybody's asking that same question. I was just on a on a pitch last week where the client was like, "What about this and that?" And we're like, "I don't have a straight up answer, but we have a plan, and the plan is going to have some wins and some failures." Um, Carlos, I, I have a question for you. Have you looked at uh, Sincera data and has that been helpful at all? No, I haven't. Here, I'll... Uh, yeah, drop it's... it in the comments uh, or the chat, rather. Yeah. I've been looking at uh, Neutronium data. They kind of like list um, audience vendors um, and they kind of do the ranking, but just that's the only like outside ranking system I found, Neutronium. So I would take a look at Sincera, uh, uh, whatever, shoot them an email or something, set up a demo and see if they have something that's useful to you because 
they are this is this is the problem with the, all the id vendors is there's no god's eye view right yeah. of the entire space and so sincera is one of the companies that's sort of seems to be building something that's the closest to like a god's eye view that we've had so far so they might be useful thank you for that yeah sure cool any other questions we have about maybe five minutes left on the call so any other questions Feel free one to question ask. from my end Ellen. okay go for it so uh, I just want to understand that it was great that we are discussing on data privacy on the digital space, mm -hmm. but recently read an article that uh, digital out of home is offering programmatic solutions and we are being tracked on the physical level. So just want to understand what about the privacy on the physical level, because we have cameras being fitted and all this billboards out there that you see. Mm -hmm. So what's the perception of that from your view, Miles? Um... I mean, I, so I, privacy in like the physical world is not something I follow like as closely, but, um, you know, it's obviously, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of, um, I mean, even in Portland, Oregon, where I am, I feel like maybe we might have some sort of law at the city level around facial recognition technology. Like that's a big one, facial recognition technology, because, um, you know, we've essentially reached a point where um, you can kind of track almost anyone down on earth using AI, using image recognition technology, and it just scans through, you know, camera footage. And there was an interesting um, blog post or something that somebody created. I don't know if it was recently, but what they did was they found influencer photos on Instagram. So there were these people, influencers, who were in, say, a city posing for a photo outside of like a famous landmark. Mm -hmm. And this person, this blogger, whoever they were, found nearby um, cameras that were uh, that you could access over the open internet. And they found so in the the influencer photo, you can you can find the timestamp of the photo or roughly when that person took that photo in front of that landmark. And then they found cameras nearby and they, they searched the footage and they use image recognition technology and they searched the footage around that same time. And they found security footage of the influencer getting their photo taken in front of these landmarks, which is like pretty incredible. If you think about is that the legal? different. That ain't uh, yeah, it, it's it's completely legal because these these cameras just are open. They're like um, beacon. I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying, I'm sorry. I'm trying to compute this in my brain on a Friday afternoon, y'all. I'm sorry. No, it's, 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 it's special. It's a, <laughs> it's a little bit strange. And this is, you know, this is actually hmm. a new, like this gets, this gets back to what I was saying about not assuming that, for instance, something like a Web 3 is going to work anything like a Web 2 because this was one of the things that we all realized after, you know, almost 20 years under web two, all of us just society, you know, yeah. had has, is coming to kind of a realization of like, Oh, my data is available anywhere at any time to anyone. And I'm not sure I really like that, <laughs> but digital technology is built so that it's very hard to prevent that because mm -hmm. it was built under Web 2, which uh -huh. the principle of Web 2 was openness. And so, you know, I think things like physical privacy end up being like really related to digital privacy in terms of what 
consumers think, what normal people think. And again, that was part of my three body problem is like, you've got government regulation, you've got tech companies making changes, and then you've got, you know, popular opinion. And to me, that's where things like physical privacy are really important. Actually, government regulation too, because governments are getting into, you know, banning facial recognition, things like this. So to me, it's all related. And I think to, to normal everyday people, a lot of it is very much related. They don't, a normal person doesn't see those things as two different things. They just say, look, I just want privacy, whether it's in real life, online, et cetera. Thanks for that, Miles. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, there's a documentary on that called Us Connected on Netflix. Well, I'm sorry, what's it called? Connected. 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 Okay, okay. Everybody's going to so, look it up this weekend. We are watching yeah. Connected. <laughs> well, and uh, so a new, like you just, so I haven't seen that, but like, so think about how many people, just normal everyday people, they don't work in the ad industry, they don't work in the digital industry. Normal people are watching that. And forming opinions and start, they're watching and they're like, oh my God, I never thought of it this way. I, I, there's no way I'm going to like use Chrome anymore. Yeah. What was it? There's no way I'm going to, you know. Oh yeah. There is like a, uh, the same thing came out Well, something similar came out about data privacy on an ad blocking and why you should block ads like many years ago, maybe five years ago. And I remember every single family members were just downloading yeah. this ad block. And I'm like, yeah. do y'all understand that, first of all, advertising is funding half of what you watch on TV? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's like, but it happened to be like less than 10%. And then over time, of course, obviously things gone down. But it's like one of those things where consumers are like very uneducated because we don't do a good job at educating them, right? And they just make rest- decision based on that emotion that what? They can know, they can hack into my baby monitor. Hell no, you know? like, what? I'm just trying to sell you diapers, dude. I don't want you to do nothing. Like, leave me alone. Oh man, great times, great times. Okay, does anybody wants to ask one more questions? We have about two, three minutes. I want to honor and respect um, Miles' time. This is great. I don't know, but we'll have to have Miles back. <laughs> I have a, Oh yeah. Go have for a it, question. Carlos. Question. Uh- <laughs> I'm having a hard time understanding the difference between CDP and DMPs. Mm, well, wondering if you have any insights on that. A really basic definition that I use is a DMP is used to manage third-party data, so data that you don't own as a marketer, whereas a CDP is specifically designed to manage first-party data. Like a CDP does not manage third-party data. Like you have you know, first-party data records inside of various, you know, MarTech and AdTech systems inside of a company, and a CDP helps orchestrate all of those first-party data records and make them, you know, actionable and uh, 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 that you can essentially activate your your first-party data. So that's that's the most basic definition that I use. Okay, got it. All right. Any questions? All right, Miles, leave us with yeah, a thanks, word. Allison. Thank you word of um wisdom a word of wisdom yeah like um what is something you now know that you wish you knew maybe when you first started in your ad tech journey like what is some was, wisdom you've learned over the i was years? actually just talking to my wife about this yesterday uh-huh. uh is the degree to which uh, and I, so I've always worked in the advertising marketing industry. I assume this is probably true in other industries, but I'm only, I only have one vantage point is that 
the 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 people, the leadership at various companies, senior leadership. I don't, you know, I mean like the people at the very top are operating from just as limited sets of information as all of us on this call. Yeah. <laughs> and more sometimes. <laughs> yes, sometimes more. And and that is, I wish I had really known that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really uh, learned that and grown to appreciate that and kind of experienced it directly. And there's nothing wrong with it. Like that's, it's not a, it's not a problem. It's not, uh, it's not, it's nothing for anybody to be ashamed of. It's not some smoking gun. It's just true. <laughs> yeah. We're all operating from very limited sets of information and we're all hunting for sort of the truth and reliable information and, and someone to tell us what to do and uh, someone to reassure us that we're doing the right thing. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's my big <laughs> lesson that I've learned. Well, that's, that's, that's some wise word, wise words. You, you probably just saved somebody's job right now. Like oh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta remain diplomatic from a client perspective, but internally too, you're the expert. A lot of us are here because we're the only expert on our team and we don't get to, you know, we have a right. lot of pressure to deliver. Yeah. And we are not, we are not allowed to make mistakes, which is cray cray, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's thank the, you for reminding the, us that. The curse of competence is what that is. Boom. Boom. Really? <laughs> um, Miles, thank you so much for dropping by everybody on the yeah, call thanks for having me. in the community. Miles will be back with Shiv actually on a call, I think April, sometime in April. And next week we might have Shiv on the call. So I'll, I'll keep everybody and confirm everything with everyone. Um, Miles information, I dropped it in our Slack channel. It will also be in the description of this video on YouTube, whenever it published in a month from now. And so connect with Miles. He, they're a great resource. U of Digital also has a course and they have identity specific. Uh, what is it? A, a module, a chapter on identity and what to do with it. We strongly recommend their content. It's phenomenal. And also they have a free version of the newsletter that they're giving us access to, but I think everyone can pretty much access that newsletter. The newsletter is good because it recaps like the top trends in the last week. And it just gives you like a good tweet, digestible, like this is what's happening in the last 10 articles you may have missed. It's a great way to stay on top of the industry and what the heck is happening. So check out this new letter. If you're interested, I'll drop in a stack again. Give me, give me a few so I can find a link again in my email. And then connect with Miles, connect with Shiv, follow them on LinkedIn. They're a great resource. We need people like them to remind us that there's something bigger outside and we need to be aware of it. Okay. They, they make it easy on us, you know. So why not? Okay. Cool. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you, Ellen, for everybody's having me. good. Thanks, okay, everybody. Cool. Thank you, Miles. Have a good thank one. You, Bye, everyone. Bye.